Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is the family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that might look cute on the outside, but we're hard as nails underneath the surface. From RFGeneration.com, I am Metal Fro, also known as the Game Boy Guru, and my co-pilot on this journey is... Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups. And as I mentioned, RF Generation is where we are hosted... Uh, it's rfgeneration.com. It's a great website with lots of resources there. There's articles on the front page. There's a forum with cool people there and content that you can um, post and, and read. We've got a great database, huge database, that you can use to catalog your games. And we also have an active Discord channel that you can come participate in. Uh, as well as not only the Shmup Club that informs what we're doing here, but also the regular community playthrough on the forum, and also the RF Generation Collector Cast podcast. So lots of good stuff there, all free to use at rfgeneration.com. I also like to mention that we have a sister cast or a uh, a bro cast, maybe called the RF Generation Playcast. And we'll talk a little bit more about them later on. But they also do a fine show and really envelop a non-shmup-themed game of the month. And just returning, we have the infamous Collector Cast. Indeed. So please give them a listen. Great stuff. And if you're really interested in music, check out the... RF Generation Community Playthrough Guest first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the game of the month. And for the game of the month of May, it was Fantasy Star. I'm, I'm sorry, Fantasy Zone. <laughs> <laughs> I got uh, too much Sega on the brain there. Yeah. All right, so... Well, with, before, we, before we dive into that, why don't we um, plagiarize the playcast a little bit? And uh, look at the question of the month. 
All right. So the question of the month is, do you like the term cute em up to describe shooters with whimsical designs and why or why not? We got a first response from Neo Antoine. I like it because it's cute. <laughs> uh, Nefarious West says, no. The reason why is because I don't like the term shoot em up. They were shooters when I first started playing them. They're still shooters to this day. And you know what I, it has really been bothering My son's been watching a lot of Nailed It lately. So whenever I hear the name Wes, I think of the way that Nicole says it. So my apologies to Nefarious West. I think it was Wes. <laughs> have you seen that show? I have not. Oh, okay. I'll watch an episode and well, you'll understand there. Anyways, <laughs> moving off from this tangent. We have JB, also known as Need New Short. Yeah, I like the term. For games like Fantasy Zone, Cotton, Harmful Park, there's just not another term that accurately describes them. I think at Castle Jots would agree. I have to. I, I like this term, the term cute em up. I think it's short, it sticks with it, it's a nice label. It's something that, and we'll talk about when we talk about. A little bit more when we talk about Fantasy Zone, but I think this and Steiner, also known as uh, Twimby, really does a good job of bringing some of that Jap- Japanese-ness or the anime style to your regular shoot-em-up. Right. Uh, at Jay Steinbrink, uh, sa- uh, responding to JB, um says, also wish there was a word that captured esoteric games like Fantasy Zone, Blackbird, and others that take things to a postmodern place where the ridiculous raises the stakes with more ridiculousness, and uh, which I find captivating. Ridiculousness raises the stakes with ridiculousness. That seems to scream to me, uh, Cho and Iki. <laughs> I would not call that a cute up <laughs> no. <laughs> that, I don't know what genre that is. Maybe that will be the next question. Where would you put this? Does that go under the uh, work time fun category? Or <laughs> something else? <laughs> and then there's a, the TurboGrafx-16 great shooter that ever, everyone loves regarding um, every, everyone's favorite pooping kid. Oh, Toilet Kids. Yes. Yes. Ah, so. uh, yes. Kusoke, Kusoke. indeed. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, our next response, or maybe just head nod, comes from at CollectorCast, which posted a GIF, or GIF, as, depending on what you want to call it, agreeing with Wes. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny when that popped up on the timeline. Uh, Zoido says, not that I hate it, but don't, I don't like it too much. Never made sense to me. At Summer Lavender, or Lavender, says, yes, it's clever AF, and it tells you what you're in for and makes a skin crawl of anyone who isn't comfortable playing games with those themes crawl, which is an absolute bonus. We need more kid ups I know we're going to get another cotton soon, but I want a new Twimby too. <laughs> I I agree. I really liked Twimby. <laughs> Again, it may be saccharine to some people and a bit off-putting, 
but it's definitely an interesting subgenre, and it's not something that I could see myself. I I guess I guess you could refer again to, to candy, right? Sometimes you're just in the mood and you want that sweetness, mm. and it comes with the playing that type type of stuff, like Parodius. There, you've got. It's not something that you're going to play every day, but it, when you have it in the right doses, it just really scratches that itch or really feeds feeds the need, so to speak. It uh, Twin B is really relaxing in in, fan, in fantasy zone too, for for getting in there and they're they're a lot of times deceptively hard. Hence the uh, joke at the beginning. Right. Uh, Nerd Tantrum says, I don't really care, to be honest. I just find it funny. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, at Castle Zotz. I love the term. Lots of my favorite shmups are described by it perfectly. Yeah, and, and Castle Zotz uh, is frequently posting about uh, magical chase on the Turbo Graphics. So, yeah, I would say that that fits. Uh, Real Vance Velez says, I think there are people who legitimately prefer cutem ups over any shmup, so the phrase gives game developers a way to market to them. So, yes, I like the term. At Wavy Amar says, So cute, hello. <laughs> Very kawaii. <laughs> uh, the Daddy Otaku One says, Yeah, it's cute and helps to describe. Uh, and uh, speaking of the collector cast at Kelsey Polnick, love it. Super adorable. <laughs> uh, Neon Dagger Games. I love the genre, obviously, but we must admit to some obnoxious names. Shmup. Euro Shmup. Cute'em up. <laughs> Japanese refer, prefer STG or shooting game. And yeah, I get that. I know there are people who don't like the term shmup. Um, obviously, Wes and collector cast. Uh, or Duke Togo uh, voiced their um, displeasure with that earlier, but you know, it, that's how it goes. I do like the term shooting game, but STG always reads to me as a little bit too similar to something else that, uh, for my taste. Sure. Euro shmup, there, I get it. Uh, there came uh, it's almost like we're just like we're describing. It's like a subgenre, in a way, and not an actual like shooting. I would put STG and shooting game under the larger category with with shmup. Euro Euro shmup would be more like a, a lesser, not its own genre, but a subcategory underneath it. Cutem up would be underneath it. Right. I'm sure there's a chart there somewhere, and I'm certain that someone has definitely done a PowerPoint presentation on it. <laughs> <laughs> Similar to like to the way that people say, "Do you prefer JRPG versus?" You know, and other people say, "No, it's not supposed to be JRPG. It's supposed to be LRPG and CRPG. And CRPG is the heavier stuff that's based upon computers, and LRPG is the lighter stuff that using Dragon Warrior <clears throat> that doesn't have all of the mechanics that were in there and." I mean, at the end of the day, call it what you want. Enjoy the games. Absolutely. 
All right, so the next one comes to us from at the single banana. I like it, but of course I like shmup as well. To me, shmup helps to differentiate scrolling shooters from first-person, third-person shooters, running guns, etc. Kinomup is a way to further distinguish the type of game someone's trying to describe. Heck, better than metal genres. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you want to get uh, into the categorizing rabbit hole, um, looking into the various different forms of metal, is uh, that's one way to do it. Uh, at God's Slimy Smile says, kind of overused to the point of not being descriptive enough. For instance, games like Fantasy Zone or Twinbee are cutemups, but so are games like Sisters Royale. Those are two way different styles, and I can see digging one and not the under, uh, not the other. Kind of like how everything with bullets is bullet hell, and every run-based RPG is a roguelike. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, I'll give my thoughts a little bit here at the end, but um, I can get how you know that that would um, how some how some might perceive that. All right, our next comment comes from Dentaface. I don't dislike it, and I think it works. Might not be required, but it's not hurtful. And uh, Player KZ, who you'll remember was on uh, our Ketsui episode, says, I feel like Cute'em Up describes a very specific cute aesthetic that was found in 80s and 90s era arcade games. Next comment comes from at Paradise Games. Love it. Go play Ordine and Baskin's bubbly, colorful, rotating sprite splendor. <laughs> I'll try saying that five times fast. Yeah. But I do like Ordine. Be, again, we should take a look at and do a, a TG16 and arcade comparison. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, Grail12013 says, I'm not a fan of too many subgenres. I'm not entirely convinced a particular aesthetic approach warrants one, as it can still be to applied to all the other existing subgenres, horizontal, vertical, 3D, etc. It's a nice informal off-the-cuff pun, though, so I'm sure it has use. I suppose that makes it a sub-subgenre, and life is too short for that level of categorization of a video game especially when its cute design would be obvious from the screen anyway. Sometimes gameplay isn't. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, an aesthetic description. on, But you could say the same thing about looking at film and looking at film noir, which literally just translates to dark film. There, yes, there's certain things on there, but it, it, all those films are... I mean, even Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they're shot in dirt certain visual style that's done you can pick up upon pretty quickly right all right our next comment comes from at boston rules 4161 m2 needs to port a parodies collection i completely agree <laughs> yeah i kind of threw that in because uh i figured you know we we, we would be the podcast to, to champion that uh at Rybones says cute ups is apt Almost as much as shmup. Soft shmups, squidgy shmups, cuddle shmups. <laughs> they were initially referred to as parody shmups, hence Parodius, Star Parodier. I suppose that should be the distinction. Parodies. 
such as the game Paradise, Parodia, Star Parodia from Cutem Ups, Twin B, Plus Alpha, Harmful Park, etc. Then there's another conundrum. Maybe Cutem Ups aren't that in substance. Cotton, etc. can be quite dark. Cutem Up Noir. <laughs> noir. <laughs> uh, up. <laughs> noir up. Oh boy. Yeah. Now you got me thinking about uh, Deja Vu. Some of the Mac Venture games there. Oh yeah. All right. Our next comment comes from us at Jack, aka Di. I consider Cutem Up games like QP Shooting Dangerous and Xmas Shooting Scramble games that are chibi style. I know that Mushihime-sama, DFK, and Death Smiles would count more towards the term as well. For me, they are different because they are more of a serious design approach. And most of the stuff, yeah, is definitely within the more chibi style that you see a lot of the major stuff in there. Twin B is a chibi style, and Parodius definitely is a chibi style. Blackbird is more of a work time fun style. I, I don't know. If you can count that exactly as chibi. And there, what are your thoughts on this, bro? Well, uh, let's. Uh, how about I'll just read the last one here, and then I'll give my thoughts. Uh, so our, our final response comes from Andrew Toriente, who says, "I don't mind it. it. If it fits the bill and not in a creepy way, I don't see an issue with the label. It's kind of cute, I think." <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, for me, I. I don't know if I if I like it or don't like it. I think it's just a descriptor that is worth keeping around because for me it it describes a a particular aesthetic and a particular look and feel. Um kind of like what KZ said and what Jack sort of alluded to, you know, I would consider that chibi style that overly cutesy look um, bright colors, sometimes pastels, uh, very cute looking characters, and uh, even sometimes, you know, all the art in the game. Um, things like a lot of the characters having, uh, you know, googly eyes or, or that kind of a thing, everything looking sort of anthropomorphic or what have you. Uh, and Wait, so, googly eyes? None of these games were developed by Rare. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I just mean in the sense that most of these games, and, and I think a lot of the parody games, you know, you can you can say like a parody shmup is a cute em up, and maybe it's maybe it is, maybe it's not. That's kind of a uh, a question for maybe another another setting, but. I think a lot of it is a very specific aesthetic where everything is is purposely made, very cute looking. The art style is supposed to be uh, sort of very appealing and that sort of childlike, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just very cartoony and very visually appealing from a sense of being bright and colorful and fun and all of that. Um, so it, it visually sets itself apart from a more serious game that uh, 
has, I'm not going to say more realistic designs, but, you know, is toned down a little bit from that. Um, you know, the, less cartoonish, right? Yeah, l- yeah. less anime style. I don't, I would not consider Mushihime sama, uh, Daifukatsu, or Death Smiles to be cute em ups. Um, those games lean more in a sort of anime style, whereas, um, the, the cute up style that I'm thinking of is is games like Fantasy Zone, Parodius, Twin B. Um, Would you put Blackbird in there? I wouldn't. Um, okay. I mean, Blackbird is obviously influenced by Fantasy Zone, but it's Fantasy Zone. And I'm going to spoil a little bit here, but from my take on it, it's a Japanese take or an anime take on Defender. Sure. And and that's where I see Blackbird as maybe a bit of homage that and that that was redone for the PlayStation Four. What was the uh, PlayStation uh, the PlayStation Four launch? Everybody was talking about how good the download game is. I forget the name of. It. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Oh, um, it became yes. a PlayStation Plus game um, that was in the same vein. Yes, and I'm blanking on the name, of course. But yeah, um, I'm wanting to call it Star or something, but. <laughs> That probably describes like half the shmups out there. It had the name Star in it. Yeah. Gosh, I can't remember. But you know what I'm talking about. That type of design is built so well, it's influenced several, several shmups on there. There's even the uh, Atlantean, which is a TurboGrafx-16 homebrew that uses the same gameplay loop. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's so good that it still was considered a great title when it came out. Resogun. Resogun, yes, thank you. So, I mean, even even today, the gameplay loop holds up, so it's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, it it's a very specific, you know, chibi style or super saccharine, as you said, very overtly cute and fun and um, I'll say childlike or sort of a, a view of maybe a sort of childlike view of of a game world kind of a thing. Um, that That's what you I know, think of. You know what you remind me of is the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the one that was in with Gene Wilder in the 70s. It reminds me of... <clears throat> When they go to the chocolate forest. Oh, yes. In the beginning of the film. That's what Fantasy Zone reminds me of. And then I guess you could say Blackbird's a boat ride that everyone's looking and going, what the heck is this? <laughs> that is an apt analogy. Yeah, I mean, realistically, for me, the cute up style is the that, that first scene that you described from the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka movie, but just brighter more pastels and um, less realistic, just just much more idealized in that kind of specific way. So thank you to everyone who sent us a response. Once again, we had great response and uh, a lot of varying opinions, but we really appreciate everybody everybody chipping in. You know what I would like to see that we're talking about to it gives me an idea. I would like to see a fantasy zone, sort of like a landscape painting, 
Fantasy Zone done in the style of Bob Ross. Oh, interesting. <laughs> We're going to put some happy little bases over here. It's <laughs> <laughs> going. Oh, that would be awesome. So, like the you saw the guy who takes like uh, goes to Goodwill and grabs those paintings and then paints video game characters into them. Oh, sure. So, so there's one with the road. Something, something like that would be fun to do. Hmm. Anyways, before I derail the the podcast here, <laughs> let's get on with the game. So, the game, as we mentioned earlier, the month of May was Fantasy Zone, which was developed by Sega with designer and director Yoji Ishida. Sorry, excuse me, Yoji Ishii, in charge of the project. It was published by Sega and had great success in Japan, but outside, not so much. And I I think it has to deal with the the Japanese boom and the Japanese aesthetic that was going on at the time. You had that just an explosion of cartoonish proportions with the launch of the Famicom. The, the players were drawn to it, and it's one of the... I would imagine that it was one of the games that was also designed to appeal to more than just a male audience. Right. And hit within there. So, according to a 2014 interview with Ishii on Shmupulations.com, his boss said, make us a Gradius killer. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think or it's true. I mean, it's really hard to to market something as well as Konami has done the Moai heads. You, you, you got you to gotta have something that's really going to go well with that. And I, I think the, the, the character of Opa Opa... Was definitely a testament. I mean, it, 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 even though it wasn't specifically made like Sonic to be a, a or it, I guess you say, with wasn't specifically made to, like Sonic to be a mascot, ended up becoming Sega's de facto mascot. Yeah, for a little while. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, we can talk about Alex Kidd later, but I think everyone likes to forget Alex Kidd. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe even Alex Kidd. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so the game utilized Sega, six, Sega System 16A hardware set. And the Sega System 16 was a beautiful piece of hardware. It did great games like OutRun. And, and oh, man, the amount of, amount of stuff on it. It's, System 16 is to Sega like CPS is to Capcom. Mm. Just a well-made piece of hardware that so many great games are on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the interesting thing is I didn't realize that there were two different iterations of the 16 System 16 hardware, but when I was looking into it, you've got 16A, which has a handful of titles, and then 16B, which has a ton of games that were made with that uh, hardware set in mind. Um, and so I don't know all the full rundown of what the, what the hardware differences are between, uh, 16A and 16B. Um, but 16A, even at its time, I think was a fairly impressive, um, fairly impressive board. And there was some really, really good games that, um, uh, that came out, you know, on that system. Oh, definitely. And that's one of the things that. I'm really excited for right now with the Mister Project. 
is it looks like they're finally they're going to start doing a System 16 core and the ability to get so many of those great games in cycle accurate FPGA sounds amazing. Yeah, that'll be really cool. Alright, so back to the game. It innovated the genre in new ways such as having a shop, limited use weapons, and ability to buy extra lives outright. That's one of the big differentiators between not the response to this time, especially Gradius, where you earned your power-ups in Gradius. In this one, you had a risk-reward system set with a shop. <clears throat> Do you buy <clears throat> a bunch of weapons and then hope that you can survive long enough in order to do that or do you, or do you buy a bunch of weapons and use them all and then when you get to the boss you sort of out or you're flying around so fast because you bought the jet engine it really added a lot of complexity to the game and with it should also mention that every time you buy something in the shop the price increases now, for something like this, I ended up playing it safe most of the time and you saved basically about the double bomb and the big wing and then saved most of the money for extra ships because you don't, can't continue in this game. Did you do the same? Mostly, yeah. Uh-huh. So, as we mentioned earlier, it calls back to Defender for its core gameplay style. Yoshi Ishii says he likes the free-scrolling games, so he made it that way, similar to Flicky, which he pre did previously. <clears throat> Flicky is good and on here, but again, we go back to Defender and some of the <clears throat> Defender and Stargate, the way that those work. <clears throat> I find it really interesting on the way that momentum works in this game. It's r really hard to master, and I, I hate to call it back to this because this is an overused meme, but Dark Souls like, it's one of those things that you beat your head against for a while, but then when it clicks and you just finally get it, the game become, really opens up and becomes a lot of fun. Sure. But if you don't like the fact that you're constantly in motion even after you let go of the controller, then it can become extremely frustrating for you. So the game was so successful, it was ported to a large number of consoles and microcomputers, including the Mark III, also known as the Sega Master System, the Famicom and the Nintendo Entertainment System, the PC Engine, the MSX, the Sharp X68000, the Sega Saturn, PS2, 3DS, and lately with the Switch and the M2 Sega Ages. It was followed up by a small handful of sequels, but the series was largely ignored in the 90s. Fantasy's own protagonist, Opa Opa, was used as a sort of mascot for a Sega early on and in various marketing materials. And within the... I want to take a step back real quick and just talk a little bit about some of the ports real quick. The Sega, the SMS and the Mark III ports are the same, and they were done by Sega themselves. But they couldn't match the color palette of the arcades, so they had to scale back and had to use two, replace two of the bosses. Replaced them with a turtle and a fish. Yes. And those same changes were ported over to the MSX version. 
which uh, it, I guess the best example of the MSX version we think of is the Fantasy Zone SMS port running on a ColecoVision. Huh, yeah. <laughs> so, avoid that port. Huh. <laughs> anyway, it's moving on. The Famicom port was ported over by Sunsoft, and they did a phenomenal job for the system. Music was great. Graphics are great. But for some reason, when they brought it over to the NES, it was, it just fell apart. I don't know why they decided to redo a lot of the graphics. It, it's uh, the it's very, it has a lot of slowdown on there. The Tengen port is just absolutely terrible. A lot of sprite flicker. Yes. The the one thing that well the two things that the Tengen port has, um potentially over the Sunsoft port is I actually kind of prefer the Tengen version music um, mostly because it's a little bit brighter sounding um, and I think it fits the game a little bit better but also the graphics are brighter I, I'm not sure what it is but it it is much closer to that bright pastel aesthetic that the arcade game has than the Famicom port by Sunsoft, which is tries to replicate the look and feel of the arcade game, but falls short a little bit because the the colors seem so muted and dark in comparison. And so, even if Sunsoft's port looks better in terms of the graphic design, I think the I think the look of or the you know the color palette that was used for the Tangan port is a little bit of an improvement because it's just brighter and cheerier, which fits the, you know, the original game. And actually there's a ROM hack of the Sunsoft version of the game that it doesn't quite use the same colors as the Tangan port, but it does brighten it up to make it match up better with the arcade version. Um, I would love to see a hack where someone took that and use that as a starting point, but then hacked in the Tengen version music just for grins. Because to me, that would almost be the best version of the game on the platform. But that's just my opinion. Hmm, I'd definitely like to see that as well. <laughs> One thing that has been hacked, though, is the PC Engine version. <laughs> the, the original PC Engine version, <laughs> it's weird with it. The music is not as good as it could be for the platform, and the sound effects, I mean, they're they're neat in their own unique way, but they sound like they were taking, we previously mentioned Defender, they sound like they're taking from a 1980 Williams arcade game. They're very sharp, and or I guess in some ways like Atari 2600. They're very sharp and defined. They're not something that you normally find coming out of the TurboGrafx or PC Engine. Right, but the, I mean, go ahead. But I was going to say, but the the new kind of enhanced version that's on the Turbo Graphics Mini um, is actually quite good. It sounds really good. I was playing it last night because I finally got my Turbo Graphics Mini in the mail yesterday, and it sounds. I, I'm not going to say it sounds exactly like the arcade. But it sounds awful close. And even, uh, you know, you were talking about the sounds. The 
the explosion sound that you you get when you when Opa Opa um, collides with something. In the original Turbo Graphics or PC Engine version, you just sort of had this weird muted single tone. But in uh, in the on the mini, when you run the enhanced version, it sounds a lot like the arcade game. So it's a lot more robust and just it just sounds way better. So definitely, if you have the Turbo Graphics Mini or the PC Engine Mini, I would say definitely try the enhanced version and see the difference. Now the next part of this, the MSX. And there, it's um, YouTube it if you're curious. But again, it's not something that uh, I would recommend anyone try and play. It's the sound is very, very high pitched and sounds off key most of it. So right. uh, do yourself a favor, just skip it. The Sharp X68000, from what I've seen, is a nice port. But without the use of an emulator or hopefully a Mr. Core upcoming, it's going to be out of reach for most. The Sega Saturn port, which I did try, works pretty well and is a really nice way to play the game. Yeah, and for all intents and purposes, it's arcade perfect in, you know, as close as one could get from a console in the mid-90s. And I've heard the PS2 port is okay. I didn't have a chance to try it, nor did I have a chance to try the 3DS or the Switch ports. I believe you tried the Switch port. I don't know about the rest. Yeah, the PS2 port, one note on that is um, the the PS2 port that came out in Japan via the Sega Ages 2500 series, uh, that includes an updated mode... Um, called Fantasy Zone Neo Classic and it has remixed versions of the soundtrack and some different things and then of course the version that we got here that came on the I think it was called the Sega Classics Collection and it was a a series of older Sega games that were kind of redux versions and that PS2 version of Fantasy Zone is on there and so when you finish a stage and you beat the boss instead of the boss just crumbling and then all, all the coins, you sort of switch to a Space Harrier-style look and feel, and the boss is just kind of spitting coins out at you. And so it's an opportunity for sort of an additional bonus game where you can collect those coins and, and rack up more money. So it's kind of an interesting change. But the Switch version from uh, M2 adds some additional modes. Uh, and so we'll talk about that as we go along. But yeah, the, the Switch version I would I would definitely recommend. And there's two versions that are sort of left off here because they're more... Well, one's a prototype and the other one is a golf game. But <laughs> you tried the golf game and I tried the prototype, which I highly recommend. So just try it out because it's not like unlike anything that you... Well, it's like something that most have played, but it's very different in a unique sort of way. And that is... Space Fantasy Zone for the TurboGrafx-16 or PC Engine CD. And that game, it it follows the stages pretty well. The first stage boss is, of course, the big hunk of wood that barfs (laughs) leaves. 
out there. And it, it's really well done and really neat. I wish it would have come to fruition. But definitely worth tracking down a copy and trying it for yourself. And you, as previously mentioned, you had tried the golf game. What did you think of that? Yeah, so for those who are unfamiliar, uh, in the early Genesis title, Arnold Palmer Tournament Golf, there's a way that you can unlock a Fantasy Zone minigame, which <laughs> ostensibly gives you a single screen that has two of the bases that you can uh, shoot down and then just an endless wave of enemies that comes on screen. And it's a very simple a very simple game, but the interesting thing is, in order to unlock it, you basically have to hit the ball on the first hole 100 times without sinking it, uh, and then you get a, a game over. And at the game over screen, you enter what's basically a variant of the Konami code, and then it unlocks this minigame. And the interesting thing about the minigame is your score is constantly climbing, so it's basically just a short survival run. Uh, you do get points for shooting down enemies, but your score is constantly climbing as you survive the game. And, you know, you've got the two bases, and then the enemies coming from all over the place, and at some point, once you've shot down a, a set number of enemies, and I don't know how, what the number is, but once you've shot down a requisite number of enemies, it basically just freezes, and um, you have to hit start or whatever if you want to start it over and try again. But I managed to, I managed to survive all the way uh, a couple of times until I had reached that that enemy threshold. And was able to uh, kind of see that through, but it basically is a very crude representation of what a port of Fantasy Zone on the Genesis could have kind of looked like in a very early prototype stage. And it just plays the title screen music from the game from Arnold Palmer Tournament Golf which doesn't necessarily fit Fantasy Zone, but it sort of fits because it's kind of that lighthearted, up-tempo, um, slightly bouncy sort of music. And, uh, I don't know. It was kind of a fun diversion. It was fun to do on stream, um, because I had several people there and, um, you know, it was just kind of fun to play around with, but it's not something that I would recommend doing more than, than once or twice. One of the things that I want to make sure I was mentioned with the SMS and Mark III version as well was that the radar, it's the only version I'm aware of that the radar is gone and there are less bases effectively making the game easier but I, I found that some of the patterns, because it doesn't, it has a little bit of problems scrolling in certain areas enemies just sort of move with you so it can make the game a little bit harder. Yeah, and the enemies in that version are fairly aggressive so that compensates for for that a little bit definitely well let's move on and, and basically talk about get into the gameplay a little bit more directly it's a it's a simple game you've got you've got joystick control you've got one button to shoot your primary weapon and you've got one button for bombs and uh 
as we said, it, it's a lot like Defender, where you you can scroll both left or right, and you know depending on what direction Opa Opa is facing, um, you can stop the scrolling by landing him on the ground, and Opa Opa has little feet, so you can actually walk along the ground. Um, and I found that quite useful at times when I was trying to sort of advance the screen a little bit so I could see if there was going to be an enemy wave coming or if I knew I was getting close to a base where I would fly down to the bottom of the screen but stay pointed in the direction I was flying. So if I was flying toward the right side of the screen, I would just fly down and stand on the ground and wait for the screen to scroll all the way over and then I would fly back up so that um, I could see more of the screen to my right than, um, than normal, which helped me to make sure that I wasn't going to fly right into an enemy or something like that. Yeah, it's definitely a valid strategy <laughs> because you've got that momentum to keep going and enemies sort of just spawn slightly off screen, so you run the real risk of always running into something. Yeah. And again, again, if you if you end up hitting something and you die, then you've got to go back and buy your weapons, and now they're more expensive. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned you mentioned that the Master System and MSX versions they only have eight outposts, but every other version has ten. And once all ten outposts are destroyed, then the boss appears. The one thing I'll say about that is in most versions it's arcade accurate where um, once all 10 bases are are destroyed there has to be no other activity on the screen meaning either you've collected the last coin or it's gone away no enemies left on the screen and no shop on the Tengen NES version for some reason you don't even have the opportunity to collect the last coin the instant the, the base is destroyed, you're taken right to the boss fight. So that was kind of a weird choice that they made um, when that game was, was ported for the NES. Now, we've, we've talked about the shop. Obviously, when you shoot down enemies, and especially outposts, that yields coins, which you want to collect, and then you can buy items when the shop appears. Uh, and early in the game, that comes when you get 2,000 in gold. Um... Now, I do believe as you progress through the game and the amount of gold that you get per enemy and per outpost goes up um, each level. And so I do believe that that threshold does go up a little bit as you go along. Because once you get toward level 6 or level 7, it takes a little bit more to get the shop to come out. Even though I think in level 7, I want to say that the first outpost or two gives you a coin that's worth something like 10,000 gold. Um, and so that, that threshold does go up a little bit as you go along. And yeah, coins will disappear if you don't collect them. So that's one of the risk-reward things in the game is if you're shooting an outpost, they, they give you the, mo the biggest and most coins, uh, or the, the most... Um, the coins that are worth the most, I'll say. And if there's an incoming group of enemies that are shooting bullets at you, you need to decide if you're going to be able to find your way through or around all of that chaos in order to go get that coin. 
And so, yeah, it's it's there's a risk reward factor to that. Now, once you once you buy your items in the shop, then it takes you to a screen where you can select your loadout. So you can choose your speed up option, which is either the big wing, the jet engine, or the rocket engine. Um, and then, of course, the small wing you're equipped with by default, so you always have that as an option. So if you really want to, you can switch back to that. But typically, it will auto-select whatever item that you bought in the shop. And then there are the three weapon upgrades in the shop, which is the laser, the wide shot, or the wave, I think it's called. Or no, wide beam, that's what it's called. Uh, and then the seven-way, or... The Tengen NES version, for some reason, only does a five-way. And I don't know if that was a sprite limit thing or why they decided to change that. But, um, you know, you'll have a, a selector for that, and each one of those will have a little asterisk by the, the one that's selected. And again, when you buy one of these items in the shop, it's going to auto-select, you know, one of them for you. Um, and then also there are bomb upgrades... So you've got the twin bomb, which basically just allows you to fire and have two bombs on screen at once. The fire bomb, which I never really used. The smart bomb, and then the heavy bomb. I really like the the smart bomb and the heavy bomb. The smart bomb was cool because of the way that the flames left up from it. Mm. And it hit stuff. It was great for clearing out ground stuff. That was on there. There's, I think it was, was it stage. Uh, was it stage round four, maybe? Where everything, all the bases were on the ground. It really made short work of those. Yeah, stage four. Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier, all the weapons are limited use. So they're all on a timer. Now, in the arcade version, and some of the more accurate arcade ports, you can see a little progress bar up in the corner that shows you how much time is ticking down on your weapon. But on... Tengen NES, Famicom, SMS, on those early ports, you don't get any indication as to how long that weapon's going to last. So even though it's the same amount of time every time you use it, it always feels like a crapshoot as to when you're going to run out. You know, I think we should just stop calling them purchase weapons. It's more like weapon rentals. <laughs> yeah, really, that's what it is. And, and... The goofy thing is, like you said before, every time you buy one, the price goes up. The only thing that doesn't go up is the big wing. I mentioned the twin bomb, but when I was playing with it last night, I realized it does go up. It just doesn't go up as significantly. So when you buy the twin bomb multiple times, eventually it goes up in price a little bit, but it doesn't jump the way the other items do, like the extra ships. Which is one of the odd things between the different versions, um, is that the initial purchase of your first extra life is a different price in different versions. In a couple of them, it's 2,000 gold. In a couple of them, it's 5,000 gold. So I don't know what the, what the deal is with that or why that was changed, but that's one of those weird things that, that, uh, you know, design teams decided to do for whatever reason. But in the arcade version, it's 5,000 for your first one, and then 20,000, and then 50,000, and then 100,000. And after 100,000, I'm not sure I I reached a point where I 
could see whatever the next option was. Oh, and the other thing is, if if you purchase more than one weapon at a time in the shop, when the timer runs out for that weapon, instead of the shop balloon appearing, there'll be this um, yellow balloon that says SEL or select. And so then if you go fly up to that, that'll give you the opportunity to select the other weapon that you bought. So you can kind of preload what you want to use for a particular level and, you know, have the opportunity to re-equip as you go along, which is kind of nice. It's a neat feature. Um, we mentioned that the, the outposts and enemies, as you go along in each stage, the value of the coins that you get as you're taking out enemies and outposts decreases over time. So it sort of discourages farming. Um, you can just kind of continue to allow enemy waifs to come and shoot them down for points. But in terms of the amount of gold that you'll get, they'll go down significantly until they're worth almost nothing. Um, there are seven stages in the game, seven base stages in the game, and then an eighth stage, which is a boss rush, and then the uh, confrontation with the final boss. And spoiler alert, it's actually your dad, Opa Opa's father, a.k.a. Opa Hey, don't Opa. Empire Strikes Back it. <laughs> <laughs> no, Opa Opa, I am your father. <laughs> um, but yeah, so round one is in a on a planet called Plaleaf, and it's all themed around plants and foliage, and the boss is called Stamperon. Round two is Tabas or Tabas. It's sort of a fire planet, and the boss is called Baranda. Uh, round three is called Ladoon. It is a de- desert planet. I thought you were going to say dessert planet. <laughs> no, I was going to say Arrakis Dune. Oh, Arrakis. Desert planet. <laughs> spice. Yes. The spice is life. Uh, so, Tabas on there, I, I always refer to that as the jazz hands planet. Oh, yes. <laughs> because the outposts have jazz hands. Those, those outposts in there, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, lending itself to the cute up um, Indeed. Tag, but... The boss of Ladoon is called Koba Beach, and it is this uh, giant jerk that shoots laser beams at you. Round four. He reminds me of the sorry. He reminds me of the angry sun in Super Mario Brothers Three. Oh yeah, kinda. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. Uh, round four is a planet called Dolomica that is underwater, um, and the boss is called Kurabunga, which is this almost like a squid, right? Yeah, it's sort of a robot with these two squidly-type arms. Yeah. Uh, round five is Polaria, which is an ice planet. Uh, and the boss is called Popozu. And it's just this sort of... I don't know. It's almost it's like snowmen. a... Yeah, it's snowmen. But it's like snowmen of varying sizes in an almost a re- reverse Russian doll kind of fashion where you have this row... Or this column of tiny little snowmen in the front that shoot these little bullets at you. And then you take out larger snowmen in the next column that shoot l- bigger bullets at you. And then and then you're down to, I think, two uh, even bigger snowmen that are more aggressive. And then you finally get to the huge snowman at the end once you blow everything else away. And uh, it's kind of a goofy boss. 
But it's also one of the hardest, in my opinion, because it, it, it are very dumb oculi, because if you don't get the start whittling away at the smallest snowman, then it's going to get pretty intense pretty quick. So you really have to know your routing and start managing. Otherwise, you're just going to come with a, a storm of bullets. Yeah. Yeah, the... Uh... I would say the hardest bosses are probably Popozu and and Boranda, the stage two boss, because, and of course it depends on the port, but uh, particularly in the arcade version, Boranda shoots out this this batch of seeds that then you know into the air and then they fall to the ground, and sometimes because of the RNG, it's it's not a recognizable pattern that it throws them out, and so it's kind of the luck of the draw. Sometimes oh. there's almost no way to squeeze through them. And so there are going to be times when you're playing that no matter how skilled you are at dodging, you're going to lose a life. You want to talk infuriating, try playing that boss on the MSX where you get sprite flicker as things flicker on and off. And they're almost everything's the same color. Yeah. I had that problem with the, the turbo graphics and MSX versions for sure. Round six is a planet called Mockstar. It's sort of a sky cloud planet. Um, and the boss is called Winkron, which is this eye that sit, floats in the middle of the screen that has these, um, I don't know, these things that sort of spin around it in a pattern. It's like a celestial wheel or some, something on there. It, I, the, the boss looks hard. But it's really easy to navigate around, or at least I found it to be. Yeah, the thing you have to, the, the main thing to, you have to think about with that one is take it out quickly. All the bosses you want to take out quickly because they get aggressive and they start to charge you. Well, Winkron, he doesn't move other than this sort of spinning wheel effect, but it goes faster and faster and faster. And it will reach a point where either it's too fast for you to move or you're trying to to move too fast to get around it and you're going to crash into one of those one of those arms yeah this reminded me a lot of a konami or grady style boss design here with you constantly having to move move in there you know or it reminds a little bit of, in some ways of proteus with the uh, dancer oh in proteus uh, i was gonna say it's not unlike the uh, tetron from gradius and salamander you know, with the four sure, arms yeah. that spin around. I mean, yeah, the, the Konami, Konami staple on there. We're going to limit your, or box you in and limit your ability to move. Yep. Uh, round seven is on a planet called Pocarius, which is a tropical planet. And the boss is known as Ida 2. And it's this weird thing that almost looks like a another take on that wood boss from the first stage, except... It's this giant square with a big goofy smile and it does this thing where it explodes into pieces and then tries to converge on your position. And so you kind of have to move at the last moment and then make sure that you're, you know, laying into it with bullets and bombs uh, when it reforms, um, because every time it blows itself apart and then comes back together it moves faster and that process gets faster. So you really have to take it out quickly. This is something though that is definitely technically impressive. And I'm certain when this came out in, I believe it was 1986, right? Yep. 
will be impressive to see this this type of effect in an arcade game. Yeah, it, I, I think it probably was pretty pretty impressive for its time. Uh, and then round eight, which like I said is the boss rush, is on a planet called Solfar, which is kind of a technology planet. It all looks like kind of faux circuit boards and electrical pathways and think of it as the uh, the cute up take on something like um, oh what's the name of the what's the name of the uh, the planet on uh, in the Star Wars universe that's all one city where the Jedi Council Coruscant? is Coruscant thank you yeah so think of it as like a simplified cute up version of Coruscant or if you want to go Star Trek I guess you could say Borg but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's more of like a riff. Gradius always seems to, for the most part, and or at least the original did, ended on a technological planet. And Gradius Three does it to that to the effect too, right? Where it's very technology based at the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if they were trying to ape Gradius and, and make something that would do it, it, it sort of mimics that. At least that's my take on it. Sure. Um, and then, of course, the final boss, as I mentioned before, is Opapa, which is Opa Opa's father. And Opapa is huge compared to Opa Opa. And he attacks you by sending out these. I don't even know what you call them. They're these blue little dudes that have these boxing gloves, almost look like a like an homage to Twin B. And they, yeah, it turn, goes from. <laughs> Being a shmup into more like shmup snake. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and so they they come out and they have different patterns. Each one of them has a different pattern that it will use, and it will follow you to an extent. But it it kind of has a set pattern that it will deploy in that. And I think there's eight different of these blue snake things that he shoots out. Um, and once you destroy all eight of those, then Opa Opa turns gray and you win the game. Sad and, you know, for a game that is very saccharine, it certainly has a very depressing story. Yeah, it's it's a little dark, um, you know, compared to the, the visual theme in the game. And that's another thing I wanted to touch upon base here, is the story and all the console ports I see is that the whole monetary system has been destabilized and you've got to deal with it and grab what you can, which seems really weird <laughs> back for shmup. But hey, if if we can throw in the word text maxim into a shmup, I guess why not? It could be anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so, But then the arcade version just sort of like, hey, uh, stuff's going down. We have to defeat the enemy forces. Here's Opa Opa. <laughs> right. So I, I, I don't know if, why that was added in there. It's interesting that it was, but sorry, did you notice that as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's just weird how, like you say, the game's cute aesthetic and bright, colorful graphics and, and all of that sort of belies the game's difficulty and also the game's more dark story that you don't really find out until you get to the end. So interesting contrast. Indeed. 
Um, now, some of the some of the enemy types that are in the game you'll see across multiple levels, like these little planes that fly, or there are these little blue blob dudes that will come out of the bases in some areas and things like that. Um, or there are these little kind of 1950s B-movie spaceship deals that will fly around and sort of follow you around a little bit. Or these other, I don't even know what you call them, these tube enemies that kind of follow you around. Um, some of those you'll see in multiple levels, whereas there are other enemy types that you'll only see on one particular level. And so it's pretty creative how they kind of mix that up. Uh, enemy bullets are typically aimed. So uh, when, when you're on screen and there are enemies uh, there on screen, if you're not taking them out, uh, at some point they will shoot at you and it will be aimed in your general direction. So um, be, be cognizant of that while you're playing. And um, also understand that many of these enemies are, um, I'll say, I'll call them military caliber snipers. <laughs> so don't get too close to some of the enemies because they will shoot you if you are a few pixels away and you will not be able to dodge. So they went to the 1942 school of uh, shooting. <laughs> Something like that. Um, we mentioned the radar before. That that does show you the the location and number of bosses that you have, uh, or uh, bosses, outposts that you have left to take out. Um, although, as we said, that's not in the MSX or SMS version for some reason. The Sharp X68000 version adds a hidden Space Harrier-themed level. Uh, so apparently, if you destroy the outposts in a specific order, and I want to say when I was, I was reading this, it had to do with destroying the bases in the order that they appear on the radar. So I think that means you have to go left a little bit when you first spawn in level 1 and destroy either the base to the left of you or two bases to the left of you. I don't remember for sure, but you have to destroy them in order. And when you do that, they'll drop letters. And when they drop the letters and you can spell out the word Harrier, then you'll get a bonus um, Space Harrier type level that you can play. And as I said before, the PS2 version the Sega Ages port adds that Space Harrier style coin grab level um, and then includes the Neo Classic hidden game, which is sort of a tweaked version of the Sunsoft Famicom game. Um, I think that's what the basis was for the ROM hack of the Famicom game that I've seen online is that Neo Classic version that just sort of does some color correcting to try and make it more like the arcade. Now, the Switch version, that adds a couple of different things as well. There's a new mode called Oopa Oopa, and so instead of playing as Opa Opa, you're playing as Oopa Oopa, which is a sort of a recolorization of the Opa Opa ship. It increases the difficulty, and it removes the score, and so it's all about the coins. Um, 
So it's a matter of shooting down enemies, collecting coins. There's way more bullets on the screen. And even in stage one, everything is super aggressive. Uh, so you'll probably die a lot unless you're an absolute whiz at Fantasy Zone. Um, but it is an interesting mode to tackle. They also add a time attack mode, which gives you unlimited lives. But of course, every death, you're just adding time to uh, your playthrough. And so it sort of serves as a way of speed running the game. There's no score. You just collect coins and, um, you know, can buy stuff in the shop or what have you. And so it's kind of an, an, another interesting take on on the Fantasy Zone formula, uh, which makes sense because most shmups, when they're auto-scrollers, the only time that you can make up is by either glitching a boss or something like that, or by finding ways to do quick kills on bosses. And that's the only way to make a shmup, a traditional shmup, go really any faster. But a game like Fantasy Zone, because it doesn't auto-scroll necessarily, or it does, but you can manipulate the speed at which you're moving around the level, it lends itself much more to something like speedrunning. So having a time attack mode in there gives you the ability to really really go for that kind of a thing and just go nuts, which is kind of cool. But the time attack mode is also quite difficult. <laughs> As we mentioned, uh, you know, the different home pro ports, there are some differences. Uh, you already mentioned the Master System and MSX versions. The stage 4 and 6 bosses are different. That sort of robot fish and a turtle. 8 outposts instead of 10 and no radar. The yeah, so, oh, since we talked about this before, why don't we talk about what's your favorite port of the game? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard not to say that the Switch port is because it is an arcade port that adds some different quality of life features. You know, there are some things that allows you to unlock in the game, such as it keeps track of how many coins that you earn throughout your play and it sort of banks them for you and then when you go into the game if you want you can immediately start the game with a whole batch of gold um so right then from the first level you can immediately go into the shop and upgrade your speed and buy a stockpile of lives whatever and kind of get a leg up along with some other things there's there's at least one, I think, thing in the in the M2 port that also allows you to somehow put back in the alternate bosses that were in the Master System and MSX versions. I'm not sure how that works or where that where they show up because I didn't get that far. Um, you know, but cool things like that. So it, it's hard not to say the Switch version. I did rather enjoy the, the Turbo Graphics version, uh, despite the fact that I always kind of botched the end and could never beat that final boss. That's my issue. But I felt like it was it was well balanced and it wasn't super difficult uh, to kind of make my way through it. And I feel like with just a little bit more time and a slight change in strategy, I could beat that version. 
Um, so aside from, you know, the music and the sound effects being a little bit less than what I think the, the hardware is capable of, I do feel like that's a pretty good conversion for its time and for the hardware. To me, the Famicom version, the enemies were really aggressive, and I thought it was almost harder than the arcade version in some ways, because enemies are shooting at you so much and so frequently that it makes the game really hard. So yeah, I, I, I'd have to go with the Switch version by default, I think, but I also quite like the TurboGrafx version. What about Good you? Good choices. Yeah, I definitely like the Saturn version, which of course is based upon the arcade version, almost arcade perfect, and does a good job of <laughs> giving the feel, the, the soundtrack, everything seems to fit pretty well, and when using a turbo controller, it really does a good job of playing well, although I must say, the turbo controller that I have made it maybe a little bit too easy, because <laughs> oh. it was just firing those shots off like crazy, and the bases were just going down. On my first try, I, I made it a, maybe to like round seven without even trying, because of the autofire was just so brutal. Wow, which version was that? <laughs> that was the Saturn version. It, it's, it's, it's the controller. The controller, the autofire, and it was just coming out in waves. Huh. Wave after wave after wave. <laughs> Playing on a regular Saturn pad, the results would have been much different. Mm, sure. <clears throat> but that was my favorite version because I didn't have a chance to try the Switch version, which I definitely will. I'm just waiting for, for it to go on sale again. The Famicom version I did like maybe more than you did. But I would still have to put the TurboGrafx-16 port as being second favorite, despite the music and sound effects. Is it was definitely the most balanced of the original console ports. Yeah, I, I, I just I, the SMS. I, I tried to like it, but it just it didn't grab me as much as I wanted it to. It was just the way that the bases themselves didn't add to or didn't show their damage so it made it hard to gauge when they were about to die <clears throat> the, the missing radar wasn't a huge thing there, but the the, the, bo the substitute bosses were neat but for the most part they felt easier than the other, the bosses that they replaced and not as, not as um, interesting to fight <laughs> it just didn't seem a, a, like to, together a pack as well thought together a package. I don't know, man. That turtle was a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I died so many times to that stinking turtle. Well, hopefully not the fish. The fish is sort of sat there. Yeah, the fish is pretty easy. I, I mean, I died a couple of times when I, you know, overcorrected with, uh, with moving. But yeah, you kind of sort of just lightly tap up or down, depending on where the wave of bullets is coming at you. So you can kind of go between it. Um, but yeah, the fish was easy, but yeah, that turtle was, was a big jerk. Too bad we don't have uh, subtitles. I have little titles that some of the podcasts do in there. We just title this uh, Shoot the Corecast Episode 24, The Turtle's a Jerk. <laughs> All right. Uh... All right. So <laughs> we're going to move on to the graphics here. As we previously mentioned, they are very pastel, very cute. Everything is very 
bright scene, colorful, very cartoonish slash anime-ish, which fits with the aesthetic that you would see during the 1980s on there. I mean, that's the art style that works so well for the Famicom. This just takes it to the, the next level. Say so there's lots of rounded edges, whimsical designs, and we talked about how it belies the game's difficulty. But, I mean, that's what you do in the arcade, right? You want to draw them in with something, a bright presentation, and then suck the quarters in real quick. Yeah. There are a couple of st occasions where the bullets can be hard to see, like stage four, the blue bullets on the blue background. Some, sometime a little bit with stage five as well. And the flicker, as we mentioned, within the MSX version, especially with the stage two boss can make it really hard to deal with enemy fire. Yeah, and that, that same flicker on the Stage 2 boss is a problem in the SMS version and the TurboGrafx version as well. So that definitely makes the RNG for that boss even less forgiving. <laughs> uh, do you have some thoughts on the graphics? Yeah, I... I've always really liked how bright and colorful the game was. And, you know, my first my first exposure to the game was the Tengen NES port, so I always appreciated the bright, colorful graphics there, but going and looking at the arcade version, it's so much more rich. And I just really like the look of the game. And I appreciate that Sega was doing something different. I mean, when I, when I was looking at that, that uh, interview with Ishii on Shmuplations, you know, he says, In the beginning, my boss told me to make a space-themed STG to rival Gradius. All the backgrounds were supposed to be in outer space with starfields, etc. But I doubted whether players would be interested in a mere knockoff. And personally, as a creator, I wanted to make something more colorful and showy. So I told our designers to use pastel colors for a bright, cheerful presentation. So it was kind of a bold move for uh, for Sega to go in that direction, and of course, a lot of their earlier games had 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 some bright, colorful stuff going on. I mean, we sort of talked about how Zaxxon was bright and colorful, almost to the point of being gaudy in some ways. And when you look at games like Starjacker or a couple of their earlier shooting games, you know. Even the ones that had less overall color were still colorful, but this was this was a whole new level. So I really appreciate this boldness in Sega to just strike out and do something different. And even though they weren't the first to do it, because technically I think Twin B came out a couple years earlier. You know, Konami had done that, but they. They took it to the next level in terms of everything being so bright and so cheery and the the full pastel kind of look and feel, especially on that, that first couple of, of levels. So it really it really does chart its own path, and so I I've always liked the look of the game, but I think I appreciate it even more now knowing more about shoot 'em up games from that that time frame and you know what the other things were that it was sort of up against that they really 
they really did go a totally different direction. Yeah, it definitely makes it stand out, which is what what you've got to do in arcade, right? You had, well, let's see, when did uh, Gradius 2 come out? Was Gradius 2 87? Was a year after this? I think so. And so uh, your contemporaries would be in, 80, I think, 85. 84 was 1942, and that was, well, somewhat bright and colorful, but nothing like this. And then 85, you had Gradius. So it's, I mean, it's it's a year after that. It's contemporaries. Are, there, and isn't 87 after, for Afterburner, the first Afterburner? Yeah, either 87 so, or 88. So you really see that Sega was trying to make make its own here, and I, I love the... I mean, even looking at OutRun and the bright and colorful colors here, it was definitely something that you couldn't get at home, and then you use the aesthetics of the game to draw in. It's it's very unique, and even today, it's very unique. Mm-hmm. And I... I, I guess what I'm looking here is, is today, to me, today is just as fun as it was when it was released. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Thinking about the sound, uh, you know, the music in the game is kind of bouncy. It's very fun. It's super catchy. Um, one of the things that I noticed when I was playing through... Um, is that a lot of the tunes, they have a common melodic kind of theme. Not necessarily variations on a theme, but all of the tunes had a similar kind of feel to them, but they were all distinct in a way. But you could tell that they were all from the same game because they all had a very similar kind of vibe. Um, and as I said, they're really catchy. I noticed myself, you know, it's been a while since I played this game prior to when we picked it up in May, and I noticed myself humming along almost immediately to some of these tunes, even though it had been several years since I had played the game, I still had these these songs bouncing around in my head, and so it really speaks to the quality of the, the composition in the game, and just how... Um, how good some of these songs are. Yeah, it's right up there on the earworm, earworm list with the Super Mario Brothers theme that plays that everyone gets stuck in their head. You know, if if they had decided to go with what you'd normally think of when you see this type of stuff, like, let's say they went with smooth jazz. <laughs> it would have been quite different. So it's very nice that they went with up-tempo uh, not really quite salsa music, but very, you know, uh, big bandish type is as close as I can come with approximation. For very up tempo, very swings, and you mentioned that you got some of the same melodies repeated over and over to form a common musical theme really does a good job of tying together and it's something that you know I can just hear it in my head as we're talking about this with the playleaf or stage one music just going off I know me too (laughs) (laughs) 
it's just yeah it just as you said it's an earworm and it just kind of gets stuck there and it never goes away and i'm okay with that ever um now in terms of the sound effects some of them can be a little bit grating um like when your main shot is hitting some enemies or um especially bosses if you're hitting against stuff that you can't damage it has this really high-pitched tinny kind of ding 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 that it does and that gets a little bit old um but otherwise i think most everything works that's the only thing i can think that's really really annoying and of course the the little when you uh, <laughs> when you die and opa opa explodes into all these little stars I would have to say that uh, explodes like Mega Man into stars. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, the ting 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 ting. I would say would be needed because it's a audio cue to tell you that you're not doing any damage. Otherwise, it may be a little difficult and people would get frustrated. Sure. Yeah, that that's just one of those situations where I understand the reason for the contrast in yeah. sounds. It's just it gets a little bit old, and so. You know, I, it doesn't bother me that much. I mean, well, it'd be funny if it just said no instead. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> just shoot the, the thing. Shoot somewhere else. <laughs> or, or like, you know what reminds me of that type of commentary really reminds me of the cheekiness of the Gradius 2 announcer. Mm. Shoot the head. Yeah. Of course, I, I guess we can't get by without saying "shoot the core," and, you know. Yeah. Or, or the Gradius guide in with the uh, one says, "You need to practice." What was that? <laughs> you need some. You practice. need more practice. Oh boy. <laughs> or, or uh, what is it? Gradius five. Come on, we're just getting started. <laughs> Reminds me a little bit of the announcer in some ways with the wave race when you enter the secret code for the GameCube. And all it does is berate you. Huh. Yeah, have you heard of that before? No. Okay, take a look. Uh, but there's a way. There's a code that was discovered. It wasn't until like long, long time after the game came out. You enter the code, and all the announcer does is just berate you. That's funny. Uh, one interesting thing to note is the the name of the or the stage five song, which is called "Hot Snow." Um, it was remixed slightly for the U.S. version of the arcade release. Uh, and same thing with the the Stage Clear song, which is called Round Up. It was just m m kind of a minor remix for the U.S. market. I don't know why, but they are a little bit different when you listen to them side by side. Uh, another cool thing uh, is in 2011... There was a, a CD release called Fantasy Zone Ultra Super Big Maximum Great so Strong Complete Album. And it was done by Wave Master Entertainment. And it has all of the official Sega soundtrack versions of all Fantasy Zone releases to that date. So that includes the arcade version, the Master System version, it has the X68000 version or at least the, the kind of Space Harrier-themed stage from that. It includes the extra tracks from the Neo Classic version, and then it also has the music from the other Fantasy Zone games. So Fantasy Zone 2, it has the 
uh, PSG and FM versions because the the Master System and and Mark III versions had FM, and then also the kind of backported arcade System 16 sound, which is fantastic. And then it has the the soundtracks for Opa Opa, also known as Fantasy Zone: The Maze, and then um, what is the other one? Uh, one of them is the Tears of Opa Opa, right? Is that uh, that's Fantasy Zone Fan- Two? Two, okay. Um, yeah, but yeah, for some reason, what we got as Fantasy Zone: The Maze here in the West was simply known as Opa Opa in Japan, and it's basically the Fantasy Zone take on Pac Man, but. All of the all of the music in that is basically just new versions of the music from the original Fantasy Zone, so it's kind of interesting. But you get the PSG version and the FM version of that, and then there's also music from Fantasy Zone Gear, which is the Game Gear game, and the Galactic Protector, which is the Master System game that stars Opa Opa, but is basically just you're spinning around this sort of planet or whatever, shooting enemies as they come in. So it's like missile command tower defense kind of thing. And, um, anyway, it's, uh, it's a cool little set. It's four discs. Unfortunately, it's very expensive now. Uh, but I want it so bad. <laughs> so the collector in me is, is chomping at the bit to have it, but I'm not paying $165 for it. So, I'll just have to, I'll just have to skip it. One one quick note about the scoring, I didn't find any particular scoring mechanics in the game, other than there's an end game bonus based on the amount of money that you still have. So if you have been able to conserve your funds as you play the game, the more money that you have when you take out Opapa, the uh, the higher your end game score will be. And we can, you know, get into that a little bit. All right. <clears throat> so now that we've talked a little bit about the scoring, let's move on to the impressions of the game. As people have played throughout for the month, this month, our participants were metal Fro, addicted, Dougley, zero zero seven, full macho, shaggy, Zoido, Normatron, and Pete Zilla. Our first comment comes from D. Tunston. I have some foggy memories of this game back in the day. I had a friend who had an SMS circa 1990. I think I was aware of the golf game trick from him. I really enjoyed revisiting this game. I thought it came out for the Genesis in North America, but I may be confusing it with Fantasy Zone 2. Well, the one that came out for the Genesis came out in Europe and Japan, right? Called Super Fantasy Zone. Right. That was that was only for the Mega Drive, and it was it, it was a different game. It was a sequel of sorts. Yeah, and as we previously mentioned, there Fantasy Zone Two is a SMS port only, although M Two ported it back and made an arcade game starting with the 3DS ports. Right. Uh, so Zoido says, as I mentioned, Fantasy Zone just isn't my cup of tea. I just don't get used to my ship being centered in the middle of the screen, so I always run into the enemies. 
I still enjoyed the boss fights and the art style, and the music will probably never leave my brains again. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely agree as we talked about earworm on there. And it's it's hard to deal with the your placement ship in that momentum again. It, it definitely was an interesting design choice that I I can understand if it's just not for some people and you prefer more of the auto scrolling. Right. All right, our next comment comes from Nefarious Wes. Beat it for the first time ever last night on the TurboGrafx-16. Congratulations. And a no-death run, too. All right, now that definitely deserves congratulations. Indeed. I spammed the heck out of the heavy bomb for the last two parts of the final boss, and that did the trick. The funny thing is, when the second loop begins, you have zero lives, and I was on such a high from beating it that I died on the first stage. No biggie, as I'm pleased with my score. Can try do it on the NES now. Wow, yeah, hats off to Wes for for that because a no death run is impressive. Uh, Shaggy said uh, after watching one of your streams, I picked up a few tips, but I can't get over how quickly it moves. But I've gotten a bit used to it. I'm still not really digging the game, and I think it's for three reasons. The game ends so quickly to me, I can't pause the game because I'm playing on the SMS and the pause button is on my or on the system. My finger needs to take a rest. And I like shooters more like Life Force and Gradius. And that's okay, you know? Uh, not every shooter is for everyone, and that's kind of the point of, of what we're doing here, is to give you the chance to play some of these games and check them out, and if they click with you, great! Um, maybe it's a game you'll want to keep playing when the month is done. If not, move on to something else and that's okay completely agree our next comment comes from pete zilla hello i finally got involved with the shmup club well thank you for joining us super fantasy zone on the mega drive was one of the first games i played i didn't even realize you had to destroy the bases for a long time oh, man you must have had a great score if you just shooting things down and destroy the bases <laughs> well thanks again for joining us i hope you had a good time yeah and then Fomacho, uh, he jumped in and said, I think the end scoring bonus is related to how much gold you still have. I cleared with 193,600. Uh, and that was the amount of gold he had. I've seen some videos with 300k or more get a 6 million point bonus. My second lap was a bit of a gaffe on my part. I should have stocked up on lives immediately. Instead, I died prematurely in the second level, and that was the end of the run. I believe I made it to the final stage without losing a life on the first lap. So, again, hats off, Fumacho, for pulling out a no-death run in the first loop of the game, because that is crazy. Alright, would you like to start us out with our high scores? All right, so for high scores, I went ahead and just grabbed the highest on each of the versions that were submitted. Uh, it doesn't look like we got any submissions for the Tengen NES or Sunsoft Famicom ports. Um, so we have Nefarious West with his clear of the TurboGrafx version. He got 6,679,700 points. Uh, I did manage to clear the Master System version, and when I did that, I actually made it all the way to stage six on the second loop. And um, 
got to 5,693,900 points. On the Switch version, Fomacho uh, cleared and had 4,532,700 points. And Dougley007, as far as I know, is the only one who was playing the arcade port that's on the Sonic's Ultimate Genesis collection. Uh, and since that doesn't have any of the accoutrements of the Switch port, I'm going to count that differently and say that counts. So, Dougley had 80,860 points. So, thank you to all who submitted scores, posted screenshots, and shared some thoughts on the game. And so, speaking of thoughts, do we have any final thoughts that we'd like to impart about Fantasy Zone? I definitely had a lot of... A fun revisiting it and, and a lot of fun playing all the different versions of it. <clears throat> Something that seemed like it might be really quick and exhaust the loop pretty quickly, but it's it stayed through it. I didn't get to any points where I'm going, oh, not this again, e- even though <laughs> it did, it, at the surface, it did seem like it might be heading there. The couple of sound effects, as you you mentioned and we had gone over, weren't quite what we had expected or up to par. Because I think they just stand out because the music is so good. And it still holds up as a good title due to its visually distinct aesthetic. It's one of those games that is just really well made and the core gameplay loop holds up. If you can get past the inertia and the fact that sometimes you're just going to accidentally ram into enemies (laughs) and get a little frustrated, it's still a fun game to play today. Yeah, I I was always a defender of the Tank and NES version. People always kind of poo-poo that version and say, oh, it's terrible and what have you. And I was always like, you know, it's not that bad. Um, Having compared it to the other versions, I definitely think it's the weakest of the console ports. Um, I would assume that the SMS version is basically like the janky cousin to the, or excuse me, the MSX version is the janky cousin to the SMS version. But yeah, I would say the Tank and NES port is probably the weakest console port. Having said that, it's still it's still playable and it's still worth a look. Um, but I was surprised at how difficult the game was overall. And I was a little bit frustrated at the end of the month with my lack of progress on the Switch port and kind of my inability to get beyond, um, I think it was stage four or five. You know, I could barely get out of stage four. And then when I got to stage five, I could barely get to the boss in stage five. And, and I don't, I don't know that I ever got past that more than once or twice. And I was frustrated that I never did get my clear on the turbo graphics version. But again, that's, that's one of those things that if I, adjust my strategy a little bit, I think I could probably do it. And I think eventually I could probably clear the the arcade version, whether on Switch or Saturn or what have you. Um, it's, it's a game that I enjoyed revisiting, and 
actually digging into deeper with the different versions. And I think I have a, a greater appreciation for the game than I did before. I always liked the game and I always thought it was cool and fun and, and something that was a little bit different, but despite any, you know, any lingering issues that I may have with one version or another, it really is a, a very strong game for its time. I think it holds up well, and it's still a lot of fun to play. And it's still challenging. So even if you're a, a seasoned player, there's enough there's enough RNG and there's enough kind of, I won't say jank, but goofiness to some of the things in the game that it... Uh, that it still offers a challenge. Um, and because the game loops, if that's your thing, go for it. You know, get through that first loop and then see how well you can you can dodge all the bullets, bam. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So now that we have, we're moving on from the month of May, and as we record this, we are in the first week of June, and we are doing a double header by with the collector cast excuse me with the RF Gen playcast playing Cannon Spike yes so th this is more of a shmup adjacent game but heck of it's not fun yeah and it's by Psycho, released by Capcom and uh, one thing that uh, someone commented on one of my streams already is that um, mechanically it shares a lot in common with Zero Gunner and that makes sense because that kind of came out around the same time and is a shooter where you can kind of swivel your craft around and shoot in different directions. Uh, but of course, this is characters on the ground and it's a combination of shooting and melee attacks. Um, so it's a, it's a neat game. I've been streaming it. Looks beautiful on uh, through a VGA. So I'm running a... VGA cable from the Dreamcast to the OSSC, getting that clean 480p signal out on the stream and to my TV, and it, it looks really good. Um, so we will be doing uh, the episode, we will be appearing on the Playcast, so we will not have a regular uh, RF Gen or a regular Shoot the Core cast during that month, because we'll be actually doing an episode on the Playcast. Uh, but be watching for that, and we'll be we'll make sure to link to that and and uh, try and get that episode in our feed as well, so that uh, our regular listeners who aren't subscribed to the Playcast can hear that as well. And then in July, we're heading back to Area 88 with UN Squadron. <laughs> Will Sir Flash join us for the discussion? Tune in to find out. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that because. It's a game that I always felt like I wasn't very good at, but having watched him stream it several times and play it, it's something that I know that it's just a matter of picking the right plane, the right loadout, learning the levels, and um, really just just digging in. Uh, and now that the now that the Mister has a uh, a core that includes Area 88 or UN Squadron, you know, you can, we can kind of compare the arcade and 
and Super NES versions. So that'll be fun. Yeah, it's definitely a game that I've had on my backlog to take a look at for a while, so I'm really excited to try it out. Awesome. So we'd like to give a shout out to everyone who joined us, as well as everyone who listens to the Playcast, as well as the Shoot the Corecast. Like two special shout outs to Sir Flash of Studio Mud Prince Bullet Heaven for the logo. Like to, excuse me, especially thank Kogusu for the intro and outro music. Everyone who joined in the RFGen NES challenge. And also like to thank Metalfro for streaming several of these games and giving a shot in spite of uh, having to dogs climbing on you <laughs> all sorts of ways and other technical difficulties yeah my my chihuahuas don't make it easy for me to to shmup and talk to the audience and chat all at the same time so it's uh it's a bit of a challenge but you know it's fun i'd also like to give a special thanks out to mark msx from the electric underground for helping us with selecting the perfect arcade stick and better ways of routing through cave games. Yep. All right. Well, if you'd like to connect with uh, us, you can follow us on Twitter at shootcorecast, or you can follow me directly at Game Boy Guru. Uh, make sure you log on to rfgeneration.com and join us for a future Shmup Club playthrough. We'd love to have you, and uh, the more the merrier. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your preferred platform. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. We also upload the latest episode to SoundCloud. And of course, you can always get the latest episode at rfgeneration.com where you can stream it on the site or download the MP3 to listen later at your leisure. Uh, you can also join the RF Generation Discord channel and check out the dedicated Shoot the Corecast topic that we have there. Um, where we post screenshots of high scores, talk about the game, uh, similar to what we do on the forum, a little bit more off-the-cuff discussion there, and also talk about shmups and, and shooters in general. And of course, follow me on Twitch so that you can get notifications of new streams. Uh, I do stream the Shmup Club Game of the Month several times a week. Uh, I try to do it most every weeknight if I can, and uh, also sometimes on the weekends, depending on what my schedule is. So check me out at twitch.tv slash guru gameboy. Anything else we need to hit on before we get out of here? Now, uh, greetings and schmuppulations. Indeed. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next month on The Playcast. <laughs>